Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 438 for April 12th, 2015. This week, after less than a week, Microsoft replaced Windows 10 build 10041 with 10049. So let's see what's different. What to do when your disk begins to fail? In short circuits, finding malware in Google's Chrome store calls into question Google's claim that it vets all applications. ISIS attacks a TV network in France and websites worldwide. And the FBI warns of fake government sites designed to steal information from you. In spare parts only on the website, using mind control on the front door, and software that's proof of China's continuing rise. Ten thousand forty-nine. That's the number of the current Windows 10 build. Build 10,041 lasted only a few days, but it's still on my old 32-bit notebook. That's because I can't install 10,049. The newer version works properly on a later 64-bit notebook. I still won't install Windows 10 on any computer I need for any important task, because it is, after all, still beta software. But it's moving in the right direction, and it's clear that we're approaching release day. Shortly after installing the new build, I created a short video. It's about six and a half minutes. You'll find it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And the video shows you some of the new features, things that are more easily shown than described. Some of the earlier builds concentrated on creating features that'll work in both standard and touch environments, on devices with small or large screens, at desks, or on the go. The 10049 build concentrates almost entirely on Project Spartan. That's the new browser that'll come with Windows 10. Remember long ago when browsers weren't free? If you wanted the latest version of Netscape, you had to pay for it. Then Microsoft released Internet Explorer, and it was free with Windows. It was a horrid browser, but it was free. Version 2 wasn't much better, but it was free. It improved a bit over the years, and some short-sighted companies actually standardized their business offerings on Internet Explorer, often Internet Explorer version 6. Because it was free and part of Windows, it became the most used browser, even though competing browsers were better and also free. There is something to be said, after all, for inertia. Eventually, IE became somewhat compliant with standards, but website developers were still required to include lots of fixes just to work around IE's behavior. Project Spartan, the browser that will undoubtedly be called something other than Spartan when Windows 10 is released, represents a completely new concept in browsers, something that exceeds Firefox or Chrome. Colors are muted, meaning that the browser distracts less from the content, and taking a page from Chrome's playbook, the tabs are at the top, Buttons provide backward and forward navigation and marking as a favorite, but the main new features are the ones that I alluded to in the video. Digital inking may have been introduced in OneNote, I think that's where I first saw it, and now Microsoft is adding it to their new browser. Users can add notes, arrows, callouts, and more to a web page. 
It works with a mouse if you have one, it works with a stylus if you have one, or with a finger if you have one. There's also a reading view. I know people who insist on killing trees to read what's on their screen. They print it first. The new browser might save a few trees. Press the reading view button and everything except the article's text disappears. And it's in a nice big font. This isn't exactly a new feature, though. Internet Explorer for Windows Phone had it in version 8.1. Of course, there are bugs and some not entirely implemented features. These are to be expected in beta software, and the problems will undoubtedly be resolved before Windows 10 is released. That doesn't mean all the bugs will be gone. Windows 10 will be released with a list of known problems. Some of the oddities I've seen in 10049, though, I'm running a beta version of a vast antivirus, but Windows warns me every time I start it up that Windows Defender has been turned off. I prefer a dual-deck taskbar, two stories high, so I can put more applications on it. I can set that up in 10049, but it resorts to a single deck following a reboot. And sometimes the Z order of components gets a bit strange. Things appear in front of other things when they shouldn't. Occasionally, the search bar appears, remains on top, and won't disappear when I open the start menu. And Microsoft has reported some other problems with 10049, ones that I haven't yet seen. After logging in, you might see a blue screen instead of the desktop. To work around this, Microsoft says you should lock the PC with the hardware button or by pressing Windows key and L, and then try logging in again. You can also try Control-Shift-Escape to open the Task Manager. Indexing of new email in Outlook is not working, so search results will be limited to when the last index was built. And you can't enable Hyper-V in this build. If Hyper-V is already installed and enabled and you upgrade to this build, Hyper-V will continue to work, though. Those are just some of the problems that are apparent in 10049. And I've talked before about the slow ring and fast ring. I've been using slow ring updates, but I switched to fast ring for 10049. The newest builds are never seen by anyone outside of Microsoft. These are in the daily canary builds. They're reviewed and eventually moved to the operating systems group and then generally available within Microsoft. Only then does the release go out to the fast ring for testers outside Microsoft, testers who have requested fast updates. All other testers are in the slow ring, which receives the update a few days or possibly a few weeks after the fast ring. The advantage of the fast ring is that testers get to see the new features earlier. The disadvantages of the fast ring are that testers get to see the new features earlier. And that means any egregious flaws that haven't been caught by internal testing. They will probably be found and corrected by fast ring testers, so the slow ring testers will never see them. But because development is nearing conclusion, I have elected to move to the fast ring. The last major build before 10041, which was almost immediately replaced by 10049, was build 9926. It brought a bunch of new features that are still being refined. The Start menu now has transparency. The All Apps button is easier to use on touch devices. And Microsoft says that dragging and dropping apps from All Apps or pinning apps from the most used apps list to the Start menu was a top request. So that was added. And now we have virtual desktops. If you've used a Linux computer or a Mac, you may already understand the benefits of a virtual desktop. Until version 9926 of Windows 10, users had to right-click and use a context menu to create a new desktop. Now you can drag a window to a plus icon to create a virtual desktop and move the current window to it in a single step. 
A new filtered alt tab shows only the windows on the current virtual desktop. The virtual desktop feature is what you probably think of as task view. Clicking the task view button opens the task view interface where you can see windows on virtual desktops. When you open the task view interface for the first time, or if you have only one desktop, the add a desktop button is supposed to be available so you can click it to add a virtual desktop. Supposed to be. In my case, it didn't work that way, so let's consider that a bug. To create a new desktop, I needed to use the Windows key, Control, and D. Win key, Control, D. After doing that one time, the feature works largely as expected. When you have more than one virtual desktop, you should be able to switch between them with the Windows key and tab. For me, that only opens a display that shows the available desktops. To switch from one to the other, use the mouse or press the tab key once again to cycle between options. For touch-enabled devices, swiping in from the left side of the screen should display the virtual desktops. You can think of this as a powerful new task switcher function, Alt-Tab, which still works to switch between tasks on the current desktop. Virtual desktops are nothing new to Linux users, and there have been utility programs that could add these features to previous versions of Windows, too. You'll find a new network flyout from the taskbar. Microsoft received a lot of feedback regarding their flyouts that are available from a special icon in the notification area. Because of the feedback, they've added a network flyout that provides quick access to network settings, and it will provide the ability to connect to wireless networks. This is an early work in progress, and Microsoft says there's more work planned on the feature. There is a text input canvas. According to Microsoft's Windows 10 blog, we've introduced an updated experience for handwriting panel recognition, optimized for short text entry. Auto-displayed on a tap in edit mode with the pen, positioned near the edit control, it provides recognition candidates, suggestions, and next word predictions. Well, I couldn't test that when I don't have a computer with a pen. If your computer is currently running Windows 7 or Windows 8 or 8.1, your upgrade to Windows 10 should be free if you perform the update during the first year that Windows 10 is available. At an event in January, Microsoft appeared to be saying that the free upgrade would be good for a year, and perhaps then implying that there would be an annual fee. I asked Microsoft's public relations agency, Wagner Edstrom Communications, for clarification, and according to Abby Smith, once a qualified Windows device is upgraded to Windows 10, we will continue to keep it up-to-date for the supported lifetime of the device, keeping it more secure and introducing new features and functionality over time at no cost. Now, there is some wiggle room in that statement. The supported lifetime of the device, for example. Ideally, this would mean that Windows would be licensed with a computer and would be updated without cost for as long as that computer is in service. Whether that will actually be the case in practice remains to be seen. Sat down at the computer one morning this week, flipped on the monitor, and there was a little dialogue box there with a red X. You never want to see a dialog box with a red X. They're never welcome. This one was less welcome than most. Windows detected a hard disk problem, it said. Even though all the important data is backed up locally, weekly backups are stored off-site, and Carbonite, 
it was still a distressing message. The message wasn't definitive. It was clear that the disk was still working, but which disk was it that was failing? The computer has four internal hard drives and two external hard drives. The message simply told me that one of them had a problem. The message was triggered by SMART, the self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology that's included in newer hard drives and most solid-state drives. It's intended to detect and report indicators of drive reliability so that failing drives can be replaced before they fail. The drive that was failing had more than 40,000 hours of operation, which is nearly five years. But I didn't know that yet. All I knew was that one of the devices needed to be replaced. Drive failures occur usually for one of two reasons. Routine slow processes such as mechanical wear and gradual degradation of storage surfaces, or sudden catastrophic failures. Monitoring can warn about the first kind, which is what happened here. No warnings are possible when something just suddenly breaks, and that's why backup is so important. I thought that perhaps the Windows management instrumentation command line might help, so I started it as an administrator and ran a command, disk drive get status. One of the drives showed a predicted fail message. Specifically, it was showing me disk 3. Well, that allowed me to identify the drive, but I still didn't have much information about why Smart thought there was a problem or how serious it was. This was a question for Crystal Disk Info. The problem identified was a reallocated sectors count problem. Disk drives monitor sectors, and when the controller software finds an area that's hard to read, the data stored there is moved to another sector, and the problematic sector is marked as unavailable. Every disk has some bad sectors, and every disk drive develops more bad sectors over time. An increase in the number of bad sectors is a good indication that the drive is beginning to fail, especially when that begins to happen quickly. The display also told me which logical drives were threatened. Drive E, which is where the TechBiter Worldwide website lives, and Drive G, which is where downloaded applications and some media files live. Both drives were fully backed up, but my preference was to copy files from the existing drive to a replacement drive. The failing drive was a 1.5 terabyte drive. A little over a year ago, I had replaced two 2 terabyte drives with two 3 terabyte drives when one of the 2 terabyte drives suddenly failed. The 2 terabyte drive that hadn't failed was on the shelf along with a refurbished 2 terabyte drive. So I picked one of them, plugged it into an external SATA drive connector, and started copying files. The process took a little over five hours for both drives, so I decided to wait until the next day to do the swapping. The rest of the story is pretty anticlimactic. I removed the left side cover from the computer, released the front panel, removed the right side cover, disconnected the power and data cables, removed a few screws, removed the drive, installed the replacement drive, plugged the power and data cables in, and started the computer. Easy. That's the way it's supposed to work. You'll find an image on the TechBiner Worldwide website of the disk that I removed from the system. Now, my personal sample size is way too small, but I've seen a lot of Seagate failures in the past few years. This could be because I own more Seagate drives than drives from other manufacturers. And a side note regarding Carbonite. Carbonite automatically paused backups in case I needed to restore any files, but I didn't. All of the files backed up from drives E and G do need to be backed up again, though. That's because Carbonite doesn't recognize replacement drives. In some ways, this is an annoyance, 
but it does allow Carbonite to confirm that the files on the computer are exactly the same files that have been backed up. In short circuits, you've probably heard that Google vets the applications that can be downloaded from its Chrome store. Possibly you've heard that from me, because I was repeating Google's claim that it does just that. But Google has suddenly removed an extension that had been available from the store. The extension had a four and a half star rating, and it had been downloaded more than a million times. Its name? Web Page Screenshot. The trouble with web page screenshot is that it collected browsing habits and then sold the information to marketers. The extension is no longer available at the Google Store. A Danish company, Heimdall Security, published a blog post this week that explains how the Chrome plugin disguised its thievery. Web page screenshot waited until a week after it had been installed to start collecting information. The developers of the extension did provide truthful terms of service, though, but of course nobody ever reads those, and apparently that nobody includes people at Google. In recent weeks, Google has removed approximately 200 extensions that inject ads. Now, anybody who read the terms of service would have found out that web page screenshot would collect IP addresses, operating system and browser information, URLs visited, data from URLs loaded and pages viewed, search queries entered, social connections, profile properties, contact details, usage data, information about installed software and hardware, and the unique identifiers for mobile devices. I don't get too excited about collecting an IP address and information about the browser and operating system. Those are pretty standard. In fact, nearly every website does that so that the developers can optimize the site. But the rest of the information, that should be off limits. If Google really does validate applications that it provides on its store site, then they really should start reading the application's terms of service. According to Heimdall Security, the information was uploaded to a server located at 64.34.175.88, which appears to be located in New York City. Regardless of the location of the IP address, though, the ultimate recipients of the information could be anywhere on the planet. The Federal Bureau of Investigation says the Islamic State of Iraq, ISIS, has been defacing websites that have WordPress installations that have not been updated to eliminate known vulnerabilities. This may be related to an ISIS attack on French media. The French public service television network TV5Monde was taken over by individuals claiming to belong to Islamic State who blacked out broadcast and defaced the station's websites and Facebook page. The network's programs were off the air for about three hours this week because of the attack against the television network founded by the French government in 1984. The prosecutor's office in Paris has opened a terrorism investigation into the attack. The FBI says that ISIS sympathizers are targeting WordPress websites by exploiting known flaws in WordPress plugins 
for which security updates are already available. That last part is important. These attacks could have been thwarted if website operators would simply install updates in a timely manner. Attacks have been launched primarily against news organizations, commercial and religious sites, and government agencies. The FBI says that several extremist hacking groups also plan to target Israeli and Jewish websites around Holocaust Remembrance Day this coming Wednesday. If you use a search engine to locate government information, you might be directed to a fake site that will simply try to steal identity information. The crooks are getting a lot better at optimizing their websites for search engines. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation says that victims may use a search engine to find a government service. One of the possibilities the FBI notes is the process of obtaining a replacement social security card. The fraudster's website appears at the top of the search results. The victim visits the site, fills out what appears to be a legitimate form, and unwittingly gives the crooks enough information to steal their identity. According to the FBI, once the forms are completed and submitted, the fraudulent website usually requires a fee to complete the service request. The fees typically range from $29 to $199 based on the government service requested. Once the fees are paid, the victim is notified that they need to send their birth certificate, driver's license, employee badge, or other personal items to a specified address. The victim is then told to wait a few days or several weeks for processing. Clever. Not only do the victims provide everything needed for the crook to steal their identity, but they pay for doing so. By the time the victim realizes it's a scam, the FBI says, They may have had extra charges billed to their credit or debit card, had a third-party designee added to their employee identification number card, and of course they will never have received the services or documents requested. Additionally, all of their personally identifiable information data has been compromised by the criminals running the website and can be used for any number of illicit purposes. The potential harm gets worse for those who send their birth certificate or other government-issued identifications to the perpetrator. The first line of defense here needs to be your own eyes and your brain. If you're looking for government information, just make sure you're on a government website by carefully examining the domain name in the browser. And something else you may want to examine carefully and spare parts only on the website, using mind control on the front door. Some people want to see that by 2025. And we see some software as proof of China's continuing rise. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.